good morning. Let's try that again. You guys seem dead today. Good morning. All right. Turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. I'm going to start in Joshua for just a couple moments. Uh, if you will uh, give me uh, a chance uh, to talk about just a couple things. Joshua chapter 7. don't know where Joshua's at, start in Genesis, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the book of Joshua, and then if you don't know Numbers 1 through 7, you got bigger problems. Joshua chapter 7. If you don't know what's going on in Joshua chapter 7, of course, uh, uh, from uh, uh, the book of Exodus all the way to Deuteronomy, we have the Israelites who have left Egypt and are heading uh, to the promised land, the land that God had promised them that they would be a part of, the place they wanted to get to. And after many years of wandering, many years of waiting, always saying and asking the question, maybe it will be next year, they finally get to the promised land. Uh, but not the whole promised land, only part of it. And Joshua, the leader, of, uh, you could have called him the manager, if you will, of uh, the Israelites, finds himself uh, before a great city called Jericho. And they just run right through Jericho. They destroy Jericho and everything in it. And then they come up and they think, well, they've done the hard work. They've defeated Jericho. They will go now to the city of Ai. And as they go up against the city of Ai, they are defeated uh, not just uh, defeated in a regular way, they are they're manhandled. And uh, as a result of that, Joshua has some questions to ask. Questions I know that uh, uh, some of you are asking this morning. Why? Some of you are gloating today sinfully. <laughs> and I ask why. I got three very quick things. You can write these down in your outline somewhere if you want to. There are three R's that I want you to remember, my dear friends, my true brothers of the faith. Number one, remember the victories of the past. I know you won't see this in your rendering of the scriptures, but Jericho was a city of 97 people. 97 victories during that battle of Jericho. Some of you understand what I mean by that. But what happened after those 97 victories? The good book, God's Word, says there was sin in the camp. My text says that uh, there was a man named uh, Kanurko, son of Camri, <laughs> the son of Gion, uh, the son of uh, Reinsdorf, of the tribe of the White Sox, who took some things to the gods of the south side. So what do we need to make sure we do in our second point of this first message? Rid yourself of all sin. Get rid of it. Get rid of all sin. And finally, a short message this morning. What do we do in light of that once we've ridded ourselves of that heinous sin in our lives? After we've remembered the past, root for the rays. Root for the rays. Your day's coming, my friends. Your day is coming. It is good for you to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And the only person that can rejoice right now technically is Scott Cap, because his team's the only one doing anything. Let's go to our, uh, our text this morning. I hope no one's offended by that little thing. I needed to grieve a little bit, but 
It's Bears season now. Amen? Amen. They're a bunch of losers too. So, I don't have a lot of time this morning, but I only have half a message, so we'll be out of here by 1.30. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. We are in a series that we've entitled The Amazing Change. And we've been looking at Saul's conversion where he gives his life over to Jesus Christ. And last week we uh, looked at Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 9, and we began looking at this uh, part of the story that is so very important for us to understand, but never to begin to elevate to a place more than where it's at in the text. And that is the conversion experience of Saul, where he places his faith in the Savior. Now Saul, while he had all these great things going for him, found himself in a flawed standing. And we too, every man, woman, and child are flawed because of our sin. No matter who we are, no matter what we do, no matter how much money we have, or as a result of the last couple weeks, don't have in our bank accounts, because of sin, we find ourselves flawed. And Saul found himself flawed as well. And our text tells us that while Saul Saul had a lot of things going for him, he had a lot of flaws. He was a man who was a a murderer, one who had given uh, approval to kill a a good man named Stephen. We see that in our text this morning. So I'm going to ask that you would stand as we read again the text that we've been looking at. We're going to look verses 1 through 9. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus that he might uh, have found there any who belonged to the way, whether men or women, that he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, as he neared Damascus, that would be about a 130-mile journey to the north, on his journey to Damascus, as he neared it, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? What's Saul's response? Look at verse 5. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, uh, and you will be told what you must do. Now the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind. He did not eat or drink anything. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, with all kidding aside and without all the things of this world set uh, to its place, Lord, we, we enjoy those things, but, but we revel and we revere your word. Oh, Lord, uh, the things of this world may be fun and, and, they, and they may uh, involve our time, but Lord, nothing is better than you. Nothing is better than your word. Lord, we feast on it, not just when we want, uh, when, when we're feeling like it or when we feel good about things in this world, but Lord, even when things are troublesome, Lord, uh, we look to you uh, because your word is truth. Your word is light. Oh, Lord, what a, an amazing story we uh, continue to ponder these weeks. Uh, you taking one who's flawed, you taking one who is sinful, and you changing them. In a matter of a second, in a nanosecond, uh, the old is gone and the new has come. Father God, we, re- we just rejoice this morning that we too, like Saul, were going our own way. That we, like sheep, had gone astray. 
And Lord, yet out of your love and your kindness and your grace and your mercy, we didn't deserve it, Lord, but you came. Uh, You sent your son, Jesus, as we've celebrated and we've come around the table remembering what you've done. Oh, Lord, let us never forget the change that you've done in our lives. So, Lord, let us make sure that in light of that change, uh, that we live like you. That we would look at Saul's life and, and the subsequent life of Paul as he not only just changes who he is and the, and the God that he serves, but, Lord, he even changes his name. Uh, that the old would be gone and the new would come. Father, I pray for some new lives this morning. That people just like Saul would bow the knee to Jesus Christ and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. Let me ask you a question this morning. What would you do if your life was summed up in you enjoying the fruits of your labor without ever having to do any labor at all? Let's say last Friday you walk into work just to come in and grab your paycheck. Not working the last two weeks at all. Just coming in, picking up the check and saying, have a great day. What happens if uh, you hung out and played games all your life and and when you were about 18 years of age, uh, one day in June you happened to go over to that big brick building in your town uh, to put a cap and gown on and, and to walk down an aisle and receive a diploma? without ever doing any school. Now that would be heaven to a guy like me, but, but what would that be like? Now, now for a moment, think uh, that uh, all you had to do as you uh, have been married is to have the party, is to come down uh, to a church, get all dressed up, that girl or guy you've been dating, you come down, all your friends and family are there, you're the spotlight of the day, and what you do is you eat, drink, you, you do some dancing, and you have a good time. And, and, and after that, you just say, it's over. It's all done. This is what we do when we talk about the issue of conversion as Christians. What we begin to do as Christians is we say we like the moment, but we don't like the work. Give me the paycheck. Don't give me the work. Give me the wedding ceremony and the reception, but does that mean I really have to work day in and day out to be the kind of father and husband uh, and lover that I need to be to my wife? No, I'd just rather have the party. Give me the graduation. Give me the graduation party, the cakes and the gifts, but don't make me study. For a lot of us as Christians, we find ourselves where we're centered in on this idea of being born again. And for some of you, as if, if you will, just walk through all the years of school, never doing a thing, but you go back and you say, but I've graduated from high school. I'm a high school graduate. And yet many of us as Christians find ourselves pointing back to a place in time, enjoying and looking with great affection on a moment in time, but no work has gone from that point on. 
You've enjoyed the fruit. You've said, hey, I, I enjoyed this moment. I, I sat and I listened to this man preach and, and it was an amazing message or, or, or I was in, in some way um, had some sort of situation resolved in my life and it was a God thing and I gave my life over to God. But from that point on, uh, you've done nothing because you hang your hat on this experience, this moment in time. Let me tell you something. Had Saul never done anything more If we were just to have the scriptures that are before us, I will tell you our lives would be much different. If it was just about conversion for Saul, then we wouldn't have half of the New Testament. If Saul thought that it was all about just being born again, then we would miss out on the great truths of his letters to the churches. And yet for many here today, you find yourself so focused in on your born-again experience, that you can point back to a time and place. I said the prayer, I walked the aisle, I filled out the card, and yet there's been no working. There's been no... Now you say, well, Tim, of course there's no working because we don't work for our salvation. You're right. We don't. Saul could do nothing to redeem himself back to God. There was no amount of good works that could happen. But as we're going to look at today, faith in the Savior doesn't just mean that we, we say, Lord, okay... I believe in you. Come into my heart. In fact, we even use terminology, and I don't want to be legalistic about this, but the terminology we do is flawed in and of itself. What do we hear when when someone uh, comes to know Christ? I accepted Jesus. Think about that for a moment. Who's accepting who? And now I've said that, so I'm not trying to beat up anybody who has said that, but, but our terminology at times is flawed. I accepted Jesus as if he's laid out amongst the gods and, and if he's an adopt-a-pet from an uh, animal shelter. Which one do I like the most? Well, I accept you, Jesus. His tail's wagging. That's why I like Jesus. I accepted Jesus for that. We miss it. We bring nothing to the table. Who accepts who? Jesus accepts us. And us, by faith, as we go to him, placing ourselves before Jesus and saying, without you, I've got nothing. Without you, I am dead in my trespasses and sin. So where am I getting at today? I want to talk about, first of all, the third part of this faith in a Savior that we didn't get to last week. We talked about the connection. but We talked about the conviction. And all of those things are true. But it leads to something. You can, you can begin to have connections with the Savior. I, I was uh, listening uh, to uh, uh, John Pilkington yesterday tell me the story of a, a neighbor friend uh, that he had. It wasn't a believer. And he had moved away. And uh, he was building some sort of airplane hangar that he had for his airplanes down in, I believe it was Missouri. That guy's an atheist. He doesn't believe in God or anything. And one day he's working all by himself, the fool that he was, way up about 25 feet up in the air, working on the steel trusses of the roof. And for some reason, he loses his balance. Now, he's got no harness, no nothing. This guy, man, he's just, he's a wise guy, you know? And he's working and he falls. And this is what he tells John and Lori, again, an unbeliever. He says, I don't know what happened. I'm amazed I'm alive today, but it was as if some hands were bringing me down to the ground. And he says, you know where I'm at with God. It couldn't have been God. It must have been something else. And so there's a connection. Remember what I was talking about last week of those goads? That man who said there is no God, that fool that says in his heart that God isn't around God is connecting with him whether he likes it or not. Even as he's falling, it seems, 
that God was there to show himself. We know that the creation of this world is connecting humanity with God. God's saying, look at me. Take it in. I'm here. And you're only in what you're seeing in the trees and in the sky. You're only seeing part of me. But take it in. Understand I'm making a connection. But in that connection, the Bible says in Romans 1 that the wrath of God is being displayed. It's, it's there. And so what God is saying is it's not just that I'm out there and I'm this great and loving God who overlooks everything that you do. But I'm a God who's going to hold you in account for what you've done. And he sends Jesus Christ and he sends the Holy Spirit to come and convict us. So yes, God is connecting with his, uh, his creation. And God is convicting his creation of their sin. Uh, but it must lead to something that is conversion by, excuse me, by the Spirit. <clears throat> conversion by the Spirit. Now, in John 1, 9, uh, verses, uh, verses 9 through 13, John 1, 9 through 13, uh, this is what the Apostle John uh, says, which I think brings uh, some uh, close parallels to what we see going on uh, in the, the Scripture text that we're in today. This is what John says in his opening passage uh, in John 1, 9. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Well, who's the him? Help me out there. Jesus. He's speaking of Jesus. Now, Jesus came to which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who uh, believed in his name, he gave the right to become uh, the children of God. Now, now listen to what it says. How does this conversion take place? He says in verse 13, children born not of natural descent. It isn't because of your nationality uh, that there's a conversion experience in your life. Nor is it of human decision. Look at Saul's life. Saul was, the last thing Saul was thinking about was bowing the knee uh, to Jesus on that road. It wasn't because of his decision. It wasn't because of someone else's will. It wasn't like uh, the uh, priests uh, from Jerusalem had forced Saul to go to Damascus, forced him to bow the knee to Jesus. It wasn't because of someone else's will. But notice what it says. But born of God. This conversion experience, please hear me, is all of God. It is all of God. Salvation is the Lord. It's His. It's of God. Now, how does it take place, this conversion experience? John says later, I'm sorry, Jesus says later. John records it in John chapter 3, uh, verses 5 through 8. He says the following. He says, as Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, no one can enter into the kingdom of God unless he's born of water. That means of, of uh, human uh, ways, born of water and born of the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. We realize that science tells us that. But the spirit gives birth to spirit. Now, you should not be surprised at my saying this. You must be born again. Now, how does it happen? Well, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What Jesus is saying, and you, you can try to figure it out, and I know we as theologians try to figure it out at times. We try to put our nuancing uh, instruments to it. But here's the thing. It's of God, and God knows how it works. It's of God, and God knows where it's going. Salvation is of God, 
and he will do what he will do. And once we recognize that, when we begin to put that into Saul's life, we begin to recognize what that means for us. Salvation wasn't because we did something. Salvation wasn't because we desired something. Salvation is of God. Now notice what we see in the text. First of all, we see that this conversion involves three things. First of all, it involves uh, the rebellious. In Acts chapter uh, 26, verse 14, Saul, or sorry, Paul is giving the story of his conversion experience that we see in Acts 9. He's telling it to King Agrippa, and he's sharing his story of conversion, his story of being born again. And notice what he's, or listen to what he says. He says, uh, about noon, O king, this is in verse 13, I was on the road and I saw a light from heaven, that light of the world that John was talking of, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now notice what he adds in this, uh, in this part of the story. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now we talked about that last week, that a goad was an agricultural tool that a farmer would use. And what it was, was it was a long staff or a long stick that at the end of the stick had some sort of sharp object attached to the end of it. And what a farmer would do is when he was uh, working in the fields, he usually would use oxen or some sort of large animal to pull plows or to p pull a wagon of some sort. And if he wanted it to go and it was unwilling to go, he would take the goad and he would begin to slap or hit the animal with the goad with that sharp piece of um, a sharp object poking into the hide, if you will, of the animal. What would it tell it to do? Get going. Do what I say. It's time to get moving. But what does uh, Jesus say to Saul? He says, you're kicking at the goads. So the first thing that we must recognize, it involves a rebellious. The thing we need to understand is when, when Saul is uh, approached by Jesus... He doesn't change who he is. Saul hasn't gotten into Bible study. Saul hasn't started going to church. Saul's not even a seeker. Saul wouldn't have gone to the weekend services. Saul wouldn't have done any of that. He wasn't a part of a small group. He hadn't read his Bible that day with the idea of seeing Jesus. He was rebellious. Why was Saul going to Damascus? To destroy Christianity, to get rid of it. The thing we must recognize in our conversion is, again, we don't go looking for Jesus, but we come as rebels. We come as rebels to God. Now, you'd say, well, Tim, in my, in my conversion experience, and I'll give you mine, uh, at a young age, I, I remember in a Sunday school class, a young child came up and said that they accepted Jesus, that they had, uh, or had been told that, that they were sinful and that Jesus uh, had died on the cross for them and that if they trusted Christ as their Savior, that, that God would give them eternal life. I didn't recognize all the things that that involved, but boy, it sounded pretty good to me. I didn't want to spend eternity in hell. I, I didn't want to live against what God said. And so what happens? I give my life to Jesus. I wasn't rebellious in that. If you believe that, then you have a warped view of your own depravity because we are rebellious. And conversion by the Spirit involves uh, the rebellious. We find ourselves kicking at the very things that God is bringing forth in our life. The next thing it involves is not just the rebellious, but it uh, involves repentance. 
Here Saul is going and he's kicking and he's angry. He wants to destroy what Jesus had started some years back. And so what does he do? He's heading to Damascus and he's persecuting Jesus and the people there. And Jesus appears to him. And what happens to Saul? Does Saul stand there and say, who are you? Does Saul stand there and say, uh, hey, get out of my way. Why are you making it look so bright out here? You're starting to hurt my eyes. Does Saul say, "Uh, you know what? Can someone pull the shades down? It's giving me a headache. No, we see Saul go flat on his face. What a posture. What a picture we have. What does Jesus do? Has Jesus said anything at this point? No. Has Jesus gone down Romans Road? No, because Romans hadn't been written yet. He has got to convert the author of that great book of Romans. And so what does Jesus say? Nothing. Jesus doesn't say a thing. What does, what does uh, Saul say? Saul says, who are you? Who are you? All Jesus has said up to this point is, uh, why do you persecute me? Why are you trying to beat me up? Why are you trying to hurt me, Saul? What, what's up? Why are you doing this? And Saul says, who are you? Who are you? But he adds the idea, who are you, Lord? Why would he say that? I don't know the last time you didn't recognize someone, someone startled you. The last thing I would say is, who are you, Lord? It seems kind of odd. I'd say, who are you? Come and tell me who you are so I know. But there seems to be a difference of position. So what does Jesus do? Jesus shows his splendor. He shows his supremacy. What happens? Jesus throws him to the ground. It's my kind of Jesus, throwing people to the ground. I like that kind of Jesus. I know Jesus liked hanging around and, and loving everybody and singing kumbaya with his disciples, but I like this throwing the people down to the ground, Jesus. It's my kind of Jesus, okay? But you know what? That's what happens, and that's what brings forth repentance. When Jesus brings us low. Now notice, Saul is heading in his direction. He's moving that direction as quickly as possible to accomplish what he wants. And a direction changes. He's laid out flat. It's about repentance. It's about a change of a heart. Now have we seen him change his heart? Well, the only change we've really seen is he's acknowledging someone bigger and better than himself. Now recognize this, when Saul was persecuting the church, he had already judged the individuals and Jesus that he was better than them. Recognize that. Why is he destroying Christianity? Because he thinks he knows better. The reason why we have to repent is because we as individuals in our sinful state think we know better than God does. And we recognize in our own heart, in our own mind, that the way we see it is the way that it really is. And what does God come and do? He says, you're a fool. You think your way is the right way? Your way leads to death and destruction. And that's what he's saying there, in essence, to Paul, or to Saul there in the text, where, where he lays them flat and he says, you think you know what you're doing? You think you're right? Let me show you my power and my strength. Let me reveal that, you know, you think Jesus is a nobody? Let me reveal the real Jesus to you. Let me stand up and show you who I am. And it brings forth a change of direction. Notice, he's supposed to go to, to uh, Damascus. Does his plans change? No. Because in the end, he goes to Damascus. What changes? His purposes. Repentance, when we give ourselves over to Jesus Christ, Jesus doesn't say, all right, 
uh, you, you were a caterer and, uh, and, and you lived in Hinkley, but what I'm going to do now is because you've repented, I'm going to move you, relocate you, and you're going to be a banker. Stan, don't get too worked up. You're going to be a banker. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He says, I'll still use you. I need a good caterer on, in the family. It's good to have a caterer in the family. It's even better to have a banker, but it's good to have a caterer. And so I, I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to change you. And so your purposes are going to be a little different. And so whatever you're doing at the point of conversion, God doesn't change the circumstances around you. He doesn't begin to change your life, if you will, in directional changes. Sometimes that happens. But most usually what it means is your purposes in those situations change. But notice one other thing that this conversion by the Spirit does. It allows for rest. The text tells us in verse 9 that for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. I'll get to this later uh, in, in, in a couple moments here, but I want to just hit on a couple things. The Bible says numerous times that Saul was zealous. Other uh, versions talk about him being relentless in his pursuit of Christianity. He wants to destroy it. He wants to put an end to it. And so what happens? Saul gets slowed down. Saul finds himself blinded, and he finds himself for three days waiting. This isn't the only time that Saul waits. We know, excuse me, later in the text in Acts, that Saul, before he goes into ministry, after uh, being saved, he goes to a place called Arabia. We believe that probably is probably somewhere in the area uh, either of Egypt, uh, out to the west of where he was at, the southwest, or somewhere in, in what would be modern-day uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, in the Arabian Peninsula. We're not, we're not quite sure where that is, but he spends years there, years of rest. But for three days, he spends resting, not eating or drinking, taking in what he's been a part of. Understand this. One of the great things about conversion, the conversion of a man's soul, is that we get to stop working once and for all. I love the great hymn, My Faith Has Found, help me out, a resting place. One of the greatest things about Christianity is that when we're saved, we can rest. We can rest. It's not about us toiling. It's not about us working. It's about us resting. Now you say, wait a minute, Tim, you just said at the beginning of the message that we are to do things. Yes, we are. But one of the greatest things about it is, is, is I know even in my own life, serving the Lord is work. Jesus, or I'm sorry, uh, Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians, the work of the Lord. Toiling, it, it sounds difficult and, and burdensome. But what I've heard from, I know my own lips and from many of you, that working for the Lord is the most glorious thing to be a part of. And there are days I know I am so tired and so weary of serving the Lord, and yet I walk away more fulfilled than anything in my life. It involves rest. Now notice, once we see this conversion take place, God changes our uh, direction. He allows us to live for Christ, to be blessed by Christ. As being rebels, He changes that, and now we're a relation to Him. We're, we're able to find solace in the fact that Jesus is taking care of everything. We move to another thing, and that is the commitment to submission. 
Not only does he, at the end of it, say, well, I'm saved, and now I can go do whatever I want, and, and, and now I'm saved. I had this religious experience, and, and now I'm going to go on a book sale and tell everybody about it. It's not what happens. He starts serving the Lord. He starts going and, and, and telling others about it, but, but how does it happen? Where does it begin? Look at verse 5. It starts with the question, who are you, Lord? The word Lord there in the Greek is literally kurios which means master, Lord, and even sometimes king. He understands what's going on. He knows that Jesus is bigger than he is. He understands Jesus is more powerful than, than he is in his humanity. And so what happens? He falls face down to the ground. He's terrified. And so what happens? He recognizes or he re- realizes Christ's ownership. Now, at that point, it's, it's, it's not a lot, but it is there. Who are you? Notice the next question uh, that, is, that is asked of, of him. He, he wants to know uh, what, what he must do. What, where, where must I go? What do you want of me is the idea there uh, in the question. Jesus says, now, uh, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replies. Now get up and go into the city and you will uh, be told what you must do. And that's what, that's what he does. He says, Lord, you're, you're the owner. You're the one who's in charge. Let me ask you a question this morning. You, you may have gone to Christ at a point in time and said, Lord, you're my Savior. Without you, I will die because of my sin. My, may you pastor say, well, that's your fire insurance. Your fire insurance to hell, uh, to make sure you, you don't spend any etern- eternity in hell. But let me ask you the question, have you ever made Jesus Christ the Lord of your life? Have you ever bowed the knee to Jesus And said, Jesus, wherever you'll send me, whatever you'll ask of me, when you say jump, I'll say how high. When you tell me to go through this valley, I'll go through this valley. Lord, I'll do whatever you want. That's a serious thing. Anybody can grab onto Jesus when we're drowning. The question is, when everything's going great, that we'll say, Jesus, there's nothing better in this world than you, so I'm going to pursue you with all my love, all my heart, and all my desire. He realized Christ's ownership. Number two, he recognized that it was his only option. Understand this. Here's Saul, big, bold, uh, prideful, arrogant Saul heading to Damascus. And the light comes out, the heavenly halogen, if you will, of Jesus comes out and hits Saul. Saul's blinded. He's thrown to the ground, face down. He's sitting there. He looks up and he's like, wow, what just hit me? Who is it? And he adds this term, Lord, which shows this idea of ownership. And he gets up. And this man in the cloud says, I want you to go into the city. And I want you to wait. And you're going to do what I say. Does Saul say, you know what? No, I don't want to do that. No. You know what? No. Damascus? No, I'm not going to go to Damascus. I'm going to head back to Jerusalem. Uh, No, you know what? I'm going to go see a doctor. I can't see. I don't know what just happened, but I need to go see a doctor. He doesn't say any of that. What does it say he does? He says he goes. Why? Because it's his only option. Understand this. We got one option. When Christ reveals himself, we got one option, only one real option, because the sense is, is, is if we don't do what Jesus says, man, I don't like that option. I don't want to go that way. If Jesus said, go, do, uh, go to Damascus and you'll be told what to do, I, I better do that. And yet so many of us think that the Christian life is an option. Well, today I'll choose to follow Jesus. Today I'll choose to to follow my own ways. And we live this schizophrenic life back and forth. Let me tell you something. Following Jesus is the only option. 
You want to get thrown on your face? You want to get thrown down to the ground? You want to be blinded? Then you just start living your own way. You know, uh, early on when I, when I took this position of ministry, I, I got to be honest with you, there were times, and I'm going to say this, and you know, some people say I shouldn't be too transparent. I'm going to be transparent. I, I remember a thought came into my mind uh, when I had been asked to, to serve in this role that, uh, man, you're, you're, you're not even 30 yet. And uh, look, you got a successful company. You've got a great wife. You, you're, now, you're starting a family. That's going well. And uh, now the church is, is in need of help. And, and you're there. And I remember the church was growing. I'm sitting there going, wow. You know, and some people said, I remember someone came up and said, Tim, you got the Midas touch. And, and I remember, and I hate myself for it. I said, yeah, I do, don't I? <laughs> and you know what happened? I started realizing there were other options in my life. Other options that meant, hey, I'm my own man. I can make my own way. Yeehaw. And you know what happened? For a year, the Lord beat the living snot out of me. And I'm not being funny. Some of you remember, I was a jolly large man. I lost 100 pounds in less than a year. Couldn't eat, couldn't drink. I lost every kind of laughter in my heart. I was tormented by thoughts and by issues in my past. And you know what happened? I learned that day, unless I give myself wholly over to Jesus, unless I kill that old Saul in my life, that you know what will happen? I will invite every time the discipline of my God in my life. You know what I recognized laying out in my bed, three days being bedridden, couldn't get up, couldn't eat, drink, go to work, nothing. What I learned was, Jesus, you're the only option. I got no other choice. And you may say, I don't like that kind of God. Well, that's who God is. And you know what? It was the best thing for me because he loved me and because he took care of me. I remember going through that and saying, I pray, Lord, you'll protect every other person. If you're doing a work in me, do it. You can beat me up, Lord. I don't care. Protect my wife. Protect my family. Uh, don't, don't hurt the church that I love. And you know what? The church grew. My wife would say, I don't know what Tim's problem is. <laughs> I'm happy. Life's good. I don't know what's wrong with old sourpuss back there, but the Lord's working on him, and we're just going to wait till that work's done. Understand, when you're a follower of Jesus Christ, following Christ is the only option. Repeat that to me. Following Christ is the only option. Notice the last thing we see in our text. The last thing we see is we must respond with obedience. If Christ is the only option, we've got one option, and that is to respond with obedience. So how do we do that? We don't just say it in word. We don't just say, Lord, I'll do what you say. That's what I'm supposed to do. But you do it. Respond with obedience. He goes to Damascus. He waits. He sits there. He doesn't worry about his eyesight. He doesn't worry about who's going to come and see him. He sits and he waits. And in there is a sense, if I had a third point, but I don't, is the sense that there's communion there. There's communion with his Savior. For three days, he doesn't do anything. No TV, no radio. That was easy for him back in the day. No nothing. What did he do? He communed with his God. You want to start responding with obedience? You say, well, it's hard to do, Tim. I'm not like Paul. I'm not like Saul at that moment. I haven't had that kind of experience. I haven't sensed God's presence maybe like you have. Start communing with God. You know those dark times that I had? For almost a year, 
for some of the sweetest times of communion I had with God. Man, he was breaking Tim down. And you know what I've recognized? That's not the only time. Every day, God's breaking me down. And my prayer is that, man, we don't have to go through that kind of road construction again. That I'll get my head straight and I'll begin to listen. Are you responding with obedience? My friends, it's not just about praying. It's not just about saying, Lord, you're my Savior. It's about recognizing that it is about obedience. Are you obeying Jesus? Not in just the big things but in the little things. Are you giving yourself over? Paul would later say in the book of Romans, let me close with this. In Romans chapter 12, he says this, the same man, therefore I urge you brothers in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So what does that mean? That means we can no longer conform to the pattern of this world, but we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. It is then and only then that we'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good and pleasing and perfect will. You want to know what God's will is for your life? Start obeying Him. Give your life over to Him knowing that as a believer, if you've bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, it's your only option. You've got no other options but to follow Him and to follow Him with all your heart. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for this word this morning. And Lord, I praise You for what you're saying in it. Father, I pray that we as a people would not just with our words say that Jesus Christ is our Savior, but we would live our lives out proving that He is Lord. So Lord, I pray that that would become a reality in our minds and our hearts today. Lord, that we would get rid of sin. It involves repentance. It involves that wonderful picture of Saul who physically was laid low. Lord, I pray that we would be spiritually laid low that we would change our direction, that we would see that the way we're heading towards brings forth destruction and, and uh, uh, wrong things in our lives and sin to take place in our lives. And Lord, that we would turn direction, that we would do an about face, and we would head to Jesus. Lord, you're our only option. We have no other hope but you. We have nothing in this world but you. Uh, but Lord, we must obey you. So Lord, give us the strength, give us the Holy Spirit who works and intercedes on our behalf that we may be able to live holy and blameless lives before you because you are our King of kings. You are our Lord of lords. To you be the glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In a few moments, we'll close our service, and I'm going to ask you uh, to...